Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. When does To Pimp a Butterfly start? When is the moment you get that call that this is ain't happening? Ain't no call, bro. There's no call. It's just ain't continuous. No, see, ain't no call. I'm so, I'm thinking in binary terms, and you were thinking in By a what? gestalt, like binary, like What's two that word things, mean, bro? two things separate. One, see, one zero. You in the wrong zone already. <laughs> you, it's too much. You trying to it's, you, you yeah. You trying to break down the un the unpredicted. You trying to control what you're not. You're not listen and don't get offensive. Yeah. You're not trying to control, but you're trying to force a narrative on something that was never there. This is me talking to Terrace Martin. He was one of Kendrick Lamar's key collaborators on To Pimp a Butterfly, and as such, has kind of had it with the narratives imposed on this album by outsiders, including me. It's no get the call when you do that kind of body of work. So, okay, there's no call. As Terrace sees it, his work as a producer and arranger on Kendrick Lamar's albums, which started way back on Kendrick's first album, Section 80, has all been one long creative conversation. And drawing a hard line between what Terrace did on albums like Good Kid Mad City and what subsequently happened on To Pimpa Butterfly is for squares, like me, who are always asking the wrong questions. Did jazz and hip hop feel like two separate paths? Man, fuck no. No. Here we go. No, because where I come from culturally, we're not going over ingredients what it takes. We're just doing a real time thing in real life. I didn't say, I'm going to get the saxophone and play jazz. Oh, and it's hip hop there too. Let me like jazz and hip hop. You don't got time to do that when you're trying to be a crip. When you're going to school, when you're growing up in L.A., you don't got time to think what is what. Whatever makes you feel good, that's what you're going to do. As Terrace saw it, his job was to help Kendrick chase the inspiration. He says he would have made a death metal record if that was where Kendrick's head was at. That little dude, for me, Kendrick Lamar, for me, wherever he want to go, we're going to go. From Higher Ground, it's The Big Hit Show. I'm Alex Papadimus. In this episode, an all-star band with years of intertwined personal and professional history joins Kendrick Lamar in a creative environment where nothing is off-limits and anything is possible. Together, they create a groundbreaking album that ignores any notion of a divide between jazz and hip-hop. Chapter 3. Mr. Andrew's Mercury. Was there ever a moment when you surprised yourself 
with what you pulled out. You went in the booth and something happened and you're like, who is that? You know a song did that? That's, uh, I think it was the second record on that album called For Free. I was in the studio with um, my guy Terrace Martin, one of the longtime producers um, and friend. And um, he was just putting me up on a lot of Miles Davis at the time, just really schooling me and educating me, you know. This is Kendrick Lamar. It's 2021, and he's thinking back to a conversation that took place in 2014, when the sound of Tabipa Butterfly was still coming into focus. And, um, you know, Miles is playing, and, you know, he's doing these scats and these rhythms. And, man, it's, I, I said to myself, I want to be able to do that, but I want to rap that way, you know, and, and you know, build on that cadence, you know, and it's, it's super out of pocket, but it's very jazz. It's very Miles Davis influence. And um, the rhythms were weird, but it was what I was feeling at the time. It was what I was in, inspired by. Terrence was telling me, he was like, man, you got to be unapologetic. If you're going to go there, you got to go there. You know for free, right? It's the one that starts like this. We're barely five minutes into this record, and suddenly we're deep in the weeds of an avant-garde jazz jam session. Again, this is track two. Track two. Putting this song right up front is a statement. Anyone still expecting a Good Kid Mad City Part 2 or any other type of safe stay-the-course album from Kendrick is kind of being shown the door. It's time for rupture, conflict, experimentation. And a lot of that came courtesy of Kendrick's band live musicians recruited in large part from the L.A. jazz scene. In this episode, we're going to take the focus off Kendrick for a bit and explore what it was like for these guys to make a record like this. Not just backing up the best rapper alive, but enabling him to turn the page on his art, challenging himself and his audience. If you're an artist headed into the Uncharted, you want guys like Terrace Martin on your team. This is Terrace. My job is to talk to the artists, get to know the artists, get to know everybody around, get to know the environment I'm around, and to just be a vessel and able to fill in blanks. What I did on To Pimp a Butterfly was just that. I just I filled in the blanks. Kendrick's business partner, Dave Free. Terrace one of those personalities where, like, he is excited by challenge. You just get Terrace's joint and a challenge. And he gonna figure that shit out for sure. You know, my job is like, I sit there, I light the joint. What we on this album? What we on? What movies you been watching? More Better Blues? Oh, that's jazz. Oh, we fucking with that sound? Yeah, we can do that, nigga. You know, you un- you know, ain't no uh, restrictions here. Ain't no restrictions artistically here. Mo' Better Blues is a Spike Lee film from 1990. Terrace and Kendrick are both big fans. Here we go, here we go, here we go. The significance to Mo' Better Blues to this process, or any process, it's a fucking movie about some gangster shit with jazz as the backdrop in the middle of the prime time of hip-hop. 
That means Spike Lee said, fuck what's going on. In 1990, hip-hop was the insurgent black music of the moment. Even Spike's own Do the Right Thing from one year earlier hinges on the sonically confrontational music of Public Enemy. But in Mo' Better Blues, jazz feels just as current as hip-hop, and just as alive and unruly, just as crucial to survival in an unforgiving world, and just as capable of fighting the power. He made a movie with jazz the background to real life. That movie just meant what we were trying to do too. In the midst of everything going on this way, let's go this way. You know? And let me just be clear with everybody, you know, the music jazz. It's the only music that says, I dare you. Dare you. Terrace says the idea of putting together a roster of real jazz musicians to play all over a Kendrick Lamar album like this one an album that lots and lots of people were going to hear, was so appealing, he basically didn't believe it at first. Kendrick said he wanted that pile of music, and I was just, when he, as he was describing, that's what he wanted without saying it, I'd be like, yeah, in front of him, yeah, for sure, for sure, bro. But my heart was like, <gasps> I thought I was never going to be able to use this stuff on a mainstream record. This is about to create jobs and a look for the jazz community so I can't fuck around. Kendrick isn't a member of the jazz community, but he gets welcomed into that community by Terrace, a card-carrying jazz musician who's also spent years producing tracks for rappers. Kendrick always respected my musicality. He respected where I was from. He respected my homeboys, where they from. You know what I'm saying? So it was, why not give my all to a person that would give his all? I'm, I'm going to give my all. So ain't no limit. I'm going to give my whole Rolodex. I'm going to give my best friends. All of them. Treat him like, it was, like he was with us since 13, 14 years old. When Terrace opens that Rolodex, he'll bring in a lot of players he's literally known since he was 13 or 14. But he'll also bring in heavy hitters from all over the contemporary jazz world. Hey, hey, hey. Sound great. Kendrick Lamar sucks. <laughs> it's obvious to say good things, you know? I write all his rhymes. Let's just start there. This is jazz pianist Robert Glasper, just one of many players who were pulled into this project by Terrace. He knows, like, this cat's going to work for this. This cat's really good, but his attitude is not going to work with this guy's attitude. Terrace gives, like, the most A1 suggestions. Longtime Kendrick producer Mark Soundwave Spears. And it just becomes this whole domino effect of just musicians ending up in our sessions. And we're like, I don't know how this happened, but I'm loving every second of it. Let's just say I help a lot of things in L.A. run real smoothly. All you really need to make a hip-hop record these days is a computer, a beat, a mic, and maybe an engineer. That's what's always been so great about it. Hip-hop, DJing, and sampling created a way for people who didn't have access to instruments or formal music education to become musicians anyway. You don't need a band on the floor, but when you do get a bunch of musicians together in a room, like Kendrick did for this album, pulling the song in different directions, bringing their own personalities to it, different things start to happen. 
things like this. This tail hit me. Uh, what the fuck is that? Oh shit, that's a raccoon tail. So, okay, that did. <laughs> there was a yes, that existed. The tail that hit Robert Glasper belonged to Stephen Bruner, better known as Thundercat. I was wearing like my Tanuki Mario hoodie. It's got this raccoon tail and it's like huge ears. It was like a mascot. He had a whole thing on. That's when I knew Steven's definitely special, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I just, you know, I'd be myself. That's what I'm saying. I felt like I could be myself there. Thundercat is probably best known for his work with Tupimpa Butterfly contributing producer Flying Lotus. In addition to being one of modern music's great eccentrics, he's also an astounding bass player. But on occasion, in previous professional contexts, he has been asked to dial it back, both personally and musically, which did not happen on To Pimp a Butterfly. I was like a kid in a candy store a bit, you know. It was, a, it, it was the excitement of feeling like I was wanted there. It was the excitement of knowing that there was no thing I had to be afraid of being a bit too much, playing a little bit too much, playing a little too less. You know, like, it was always like a want to explore and we, we were all kind of like exploring sound and stuff together. Producer Soundwave again. I just remember Thundercat putting him on and he's all into it, into it, like jumping off the couch and stuff. And I'm like, bro, who is this guy? I love this guy. Like he's involved. Whatever he's doing is 30 times. He's going to do it to the 10th, 100,000 power. They had to take the Red Bull, the, the Red Bull fridge out of the studio. <laughs> Turn into supersonic <laughs> drinking Red Bulls. The musicians that Terrace brought in worked for months, mostly at night. Kendrick was usually the first one there and the last one to leave. Everything that wasn't this music became secondary, as Soundwave explains. Thundercat is going to have a Dragon Ball Z outfit or something that's just far out there. That's 100% Thundercat. Everybody else just are coming in pajamas, like sweats, most comfortable things, because they know you're not leaving. Like I remember we, we got in trouble because... We sent the runner to get us underwear. And the runner's only for food, you know, like, and stuff like that. But it's like, the regulator heard that. It's like, bro, you can't do that. No, they're only there supposed to get you food. It's like, there's food at Target, so why can't he just pick up some underwears on the way back? But yeah. Dave Free remembers Kendrick getting deep into the mechanics of music, asking the musicians questions like, what's the most used note? What's the least used note? They're having an argument amongst each other, but you're getting the truth out of that argument about notes and what. <laughs> you're like, oh, shit, I'm learning something. Right. It's like a room full of scientists or something. No, it was. If we All we needed was white coats. Vibe was special. I'm a little bit older than, you know what I mean, the other guys. So I'm looking at it as this is probably a moment that won't happen again. Terrence Henderson, better known as Punch, has known Kendrick since 2003 when he signed him to the independent label Top Dog Entertainment. We had ping pong table in the back. And we had a little video game set up in the corner. Different people that come through every so often. Punch says the vibe at the Tupipa Butterfly sessions was loose and fun, except when Kendrick's process required it to be otherwise. Remember Kendrick had to kick the weed man out. He was stuck on a bar. He couldn't he couldn't get it out, so he frustrated. You know, Kendrick don't smoke. So he come out and the weed man got his whole setup on the coffee table. 
and he already frustrated. Like, yo, just get out of here. Get out of the whole building, actually. Take everything. Because we've been super cool. Like, he know this dude. But it's like, yo, I can't come up with this bar. It's bothering me. So you've got these jazz players coming in, excited for the chance to actually use what they're good at in a session like this. And what they do gets Kendrick excited to have them do more. Robert Glasper remembers how his appearance on a song called Complexion led to a bigger role on the rest of the album. The track stopped. I'm supposed to stop because the track stopped. But I, I'm infamous for, I keep playing just in case, because I'm always like, you might want to use this shit for something else and it's gonna be dope. So I, I keep playing on purpose and I change some of the colors around and the, you know I keep playing and I look through the glass and I see Kendrick like, yo, keep going, keep going, keep going, woo. I see everybody hype, right? So I keep playing, boom, 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 for like another two, three minutes or some shit. And when I walked out of the booth, Kendrick was like, oh, man, everybody was hype. He was like, man, he said, I, I'm gonna fade the song out, but I'm gonna fade it back in with what you just did, but I'm gonna make a different drum beat and I'm gonna rap in a different voice. This is what everybody says about Kendrick on To Pimp a Butterfly, that he brings in all these people from the jazz world and instead of treating them like human samples or whatever, he lets them go and experiment and try things. And then he lets that spirit of adventurism carry him in a new direction. Terrence is telling us about this, this kid that was like, the John, he's called the John Coltrane of rap. And how he was going to revolutionize the whole thing, you know. And I, he, and I would hear it, I was like, wow, this is so dope. This is Kamasi Washington. He's a saxophonist and a composer and arranger. He showed up toward the very end of the Tempo Butterfly sessions to add strings to a few tracks. That group of musicians, we had all played on tons of records together. We always knew that, like, you had to kind of sneak the real cool shit in there. When Kamasi heard To Pimp a Butterfly, he heard these musicians he'd known for years actually getting to do the cool shit. I felt like the record that we all wanted to make. I, mean, I could hear Terrace. I could hear it. Like, I could hear him really going in. And I was like, oh, wow. And I could hear Thundercat really going in. And Robert Blasper, I could hear Robert on stuff. Like, I was, it was just, I could hear all these sounds. But I can hear them, you know, I know the difference between like the, you know, recording for an artist and recording for yourself. I'm hearing the self version all together and then Kendrick on top of it. And I was like, wow, man, what did, how'd y'all do this, you know? These sessions were an improvisational full band collaboration in ways that hip hop records don't always tend to be, with the exception of the lyrics. Those were all Kendrick. Thundercat again. It, it was just kind of like, in between, he'd be listening and listening to music, processing, you know, he'd be writing. He'd see him go jot some stuff down, maybe, or like even have to immediately, you know, get something out, you know. And he was just, it was just was continuously flowing in a certain manner. But, it, you know, he, every time, every now and again, he'd poke, he'd poke his head out, he'd be twisting his hair and listening, and he'd go back in there. But he was kind of in his own world a lot. Here's Kendrick Lamar again. Yeah, I'm just trying stuff, throwing the paint on the wall. You know, writing that's, you know, these incredible musicians rock out. I, I like that for eight bars. I like that. I like that. So prior to the album actually coming out, the shit actually sounded way more complex. My idea was maybe I could be one of the biggest fraud and gangster dudes in that life. 
without using violence. Maybe I can just get a gang of money to sell what I got to sell, hustle what I got to hustle to get to this next level. That was my dream, like in fourth, fifth grade. And music just, boop. So there's this group of musicians. They've grown up playing jazz, but because of when they grew up, they've also grown up listening to and in some cases making hip-hop music as well. Whether they know it or not, they've spent their entire lives preparing to make a record like To Pimp a Butterfly. They come from different backgrounds, different parts of Los Angeles, and different sets of circumstances. But in many cases, like Kendrick, their lives as artists and their careers in music have diverted them away from uncertain futures. Terrace Martin grew up all over Los Angeles, but spent a lot of his time in the Slauson and Crenshaw area, just north of where Kendrick's from. He grew up in proximity to gang culture and assumed his future would involve some version of that life. I believe there's a God. I personally believe that. So for me, I look at music as God saw me as a kid that kind of couldn't went astray. He threw a seed down. And I just so happened to be at a place that I could catch that. In 10th grade, Terrace's life took a turn. In a sense, maybe this moment is when Two Pimp a Butterfly starts, even if no one knows it at the time. When Terrace is in 10th grade, he meets a guy who'll change his life, who, over the years, has changed a lot of lives. Reggie Andrews, legend for a lot of us a father, for some of us an uncle, for some of us a peer, for some of us a friend. You know, for me, it was more, Reggie Andrews more of a father, uncle, master teacher, so he's my superior. He's not my peer. I don't laugh and joke the same way. I don't cuss as much in front of him. Here's what you need to know about Reggie Andrews. By the early 70s, he'd made a name for himself as a guitarist, songwriter, and arranger. He'd played with Earth, Wind, and Fire and the Latin jazz legend Willie Bobo and made a mythical L.A. jazz album called Mystic Beauty with his own band, Reggie Andrews and the Fellowship. But by the time he met Terrace Martin, Reggie had mostly backburnered his own music career to focus on teaching. I was such a fuck-up in school, getting straight Fs, ditching, gun cases, fighting, stealing. And then one day, Reggie called my mom, like, y'all want to come meet you, meet your son. And uh, I like, he started coming by, and he told my mom, you know, I, you know, I, I, I deal with kids like this a lot. I know the path he's on. I, I could, the path he on, he ain't going to get into no school. Ain't no college, but he's kind of for sure. He, talented, very talented, but, you know, he, we got to kind of, you know, dust him off a little bit. I think I could do that. This is what Reggie does. It's what he's been doing long before he meets Terrace. He finds people. His real resume is what those people go on to do. His student, Ndugu Chancellor, goes on to play drums on Michael Jackson's Billie Jean. Reggie mentors jazz and R&B star Patrice Russian, L.A. rappers The Far Side and their producer Jay Swift, and even actor, musician, and Transformers star Tyrese Gibson. Reggie should write a book about young black minds. You know, when I look at Tyrese's success to this day, movies and everything, I'm like, man, Reggie shaped that young black mind. You know, it's not like shaping a white mind. I don't know what it's like. I never had a white kid. I don't know. But I know a young black mind, there's some shit going on. You grow up knowing everybody against you. From your birth, your parents is telling you the police going to kill you. They could kill you. So shut the fuck up. He knew how to look at a motherfucker and be like, uh, okay, okay, let me, I know what to do with this. 
Reggie brought generations of kids into a group called the Multi-School Jazz Band, made up of promising young musicians from schools all over town. Young musicians like Terrace, who might not otherwise have found the space and the impetus to develop their talents. So for what will not be the last time, Terrace winds up in a band with kids like Steven Bruner, not yet known as Thundercat, and Bruner's brother Ronald, a drummer, and a saxophonist named Kamasi Washington. The leader of that band, Reggie Andrews, um, he was also my dad's teacher. Kamasi's 2015 album, The Epic, will establish him as a major voice in 21st century jazz. But in those days, he's just a kid from Inglewood riding the back of Reggie Andrews' car. I never forget, he picked me up. The first day he picked me up, he had, he had Ronald Bruner Jr. and Thundercat in the car. And they looked like little kids. <laughs> Yeah, I started playing in the multi-school jazz band when I was about 13, 14 years old. And here's Thundercat. I was young. I could play bass, but I was like the little, you know, kid. So I didn't get to do, you know, whenever you needed somebody to really, really make sure that they could do it, they would get one of the more older kids to do it. But Mr. Andrews would also have me set my bass up and like learn the charts and learn stuff. In the multi-school jazz band, these young musicians learned how to play together. But much more importantly, according to Terrace, they became the beneficiaries of Mr. Andrews' years of real-world experience. You wake up that AM class, it wasn't no fucking Coltrane playing. I could hear it now, the chalkboard. Music! Business! Music, business! What's the bigger word? Business. <laughs> Publishing. Royalties. Masters. How to find a good attorney. Publicists. Who matters, really? The non-talented folks run the game, so appease them as well. They wouldn't talk about music until the end of the week, late at night. Mr. Andrews, <laughs> make sure we eat before you take, take us home. I feel like going to McDonald's after the, after the shows or after rehearsal was kind of like, that was like our early going to a bar. <laughs> like, you know? My thing back then was a quarter pounder with cheese with bacon, with a six-piece chicken made nugget and an orange high seat with no ice, please, and extra sweet and sour sauce. That was it. We'd sit in the car and talk trash and, you know, talk about stuff, you know, everything from life to girls to, you know, what it means. You know, Mr. Andrews would quiz us on stuff and, you know, he, a lot of, yeah, a lot of my early development sitting in Mr. Andrews' Mercury. <laughs> Kamasi, Washington. This band was like, it was amazing. Even though Ron Bruner and Ronald and Steven looked like little kids, they didn't sound like little kids. They sound like grown, everybody in that band sounded like a grown man. Mm. Like they sounded like the records. You know, you had like Terrace Martin, was like Jack McLean and Eric Dolphin and John Coltrane all mixed into one on alto was in the band. You know, it was, it was a really good band. And I was actually a little bit intimidated. For Terrace, and undoubtedly for a lot of other people who found their way to Reggie Andrews, the multi-school jazz band wasn't just a hot band. It was the thing that redirected the course of their lives. So to ask you a question, who is Reggie Andrews? He's that to me. Without him, he's the point of direction. My dad is the root. Reggie's the grass. Kendrick had people like his English teacher, Regis Inge, who taught him to stand up and deliver a line and kids from across L.A. had Reggie. He could have been the biggest producer in the world. He, well, he is to me. He produced all of us. As soon as the kids from the multi-school jazz band got old enough to travel by themselves, they were out nearly every night, 
not just seeing jazz, but playing it. We were active kids, you know? We were trying to do everything, right from the jump. I mean, yeah, from ninth grade on, we were at the world stage every night. The World Stage, co-founded by jazz drummer Billy Higgins in the late 80s, is a nonprofit arts education center and live performance space in Lemert Park. Since the early 1960s, Lemert Park has been the center of black cultural life in Los Angeles. Boys in the Hood director John Singleton, whose office was in Lemert Park, once called it the Black Greenwich Village. It's home to black-owned bookstores, coffee shops like the jazz locust Fifth Street Dicks, and several performance spaces crucial to late 20th century L.A. music history, where adventurous jazz and out-there hip-hop both thrived. Back then, the West Coast gangster rap sound pioneered by Dr. Dre and N.W.A. and carried forward by artists like Snoop Dogg was at its commercial peak. But in Lemert Park, a vital independent hip-hop scene flourished during open mic nights at the Good Life Cafe, a health food store with a stage, and its successor, a weekly hip-hop workshop called Project Blowed. Rapper's Jurassic 5 got started there, as did the staggeringly influential jazz-inflected crew Freestyle Fellowship. It was where the music was, and it just felt like a community, you know, and it was, um, we were welcome here. To me, it was a place where cats could come and express themselves. To Pimp a Butterfly contributor Joseph Leinberg, who's both a trumpeter and a hip-hop producer, was also in Terrace's Rolodex. Oh man, Joseph Leinberg, God. He's one of the biggest fucking trailblazers in L.A. Joseph points out that on any given Thursday, you could check out L.A.'s hottest underground rappers vying for lyrical supremacy at Project Blowed and then swing around the block to see jazz at the world stage. Joseph did it all the time. He had the duality on each side of the block. So I remember bumping into Terrace Martin, um, just checking out the jazz at the world stage. I met him when I was 14 in the back of Lemert Park, in between the world stage and the motherfucking cleaners. It's an alley right there. I'll take you over there tomorrow, straight up. And he was smoking a cigarette and a joint, two hands, the most amazing thing ever. Lemert Park, just one of the only places that I know of in LA where you really get the sense of the rich culture of Los Angeles, you know, with the African drumming, the freestyle rap you dig, cats playing chess outside and the coffee and the, you know, the rich culture of uh, jazz was alive and still is. And, um, man, yeah, Lemur Park is the shit. If you want to talk about the inextricable interconnectedness of jazz and hip-hop, particularly for the musicians who made To Pimp a Butterfly what it is, that idea is embodied by guys like Joseph and Terrace, who've always treated the divide as purely theoretical. A short walk across Lemert Park. And as it happens, long before they came together to back Kendrick Lamar on a journey beyond regular rap, Many To Pimp a Butterfly contributors moved through the orbit of another L.A. hip-hop icon. Like right after high school, pretty much, Terrace got us on the gig with Snoop. Along with Terrace Martin, Thundercat, Kamasi Washington, we all were Snoopadelics. So, you know, he exposed us to the road and kind of showed us uh, the ropes. 
Snoop used to make you play your beats with a room full of gangsters, hustlers, all-star producers. Terra says he learned many important lessons from Snoop, including this one. Play a record for your enemy. Artists kill me every time I get to a studio. I got my next single. Yeah, they gonna go crazy for this. Nigga, no, they not. That shit weak. And it come out, no, don't nobody like it, but them made three of the male friends that was bobbing her head with them the whole time of the sessions. You know? You want to test your music? Go drop your CD off at a barbershop and come back later and put a secret camera in there. Watch that. Snoop Dogg, it trained you to be a beast and not get married to anything tied to you musically. And to just make sure you get to the highest level of art and success at one time. Nothing is separate. Remember I told you that? Nothing is separate. Just to be deep, I prayed to God at 12 years, 13 years old to work with Herbie Hancock, to work with Snoop Dogg, to work with Dr. Dre. And I feel with just goodwill and my diligence and my and my just stay on my path with prayer, it just everything happened. It really happens like that if you stay on a path. That path ultimately led Terrace to an upstart record label called Top Dog Entertainment. Anthony Top Dog Tiffith, the founder of TDE, is an entrepreneur and a record producer. But in interviews over the years, he's referred nonchalantly and non-incriminatingly to his former life as a quote-unquote hustler. So when he first meets Terrace, Top Dog needs no introduction. Top Dog? Dude, dog, out the motherfucking Nickerson Gardens? Eastside superhero. Terrace got to know TDE rapper J-Rock first, but it wasn't long before he started working with another young artist on the label, Kendrick Lamar, who was still K-Dot back then. Terrace eventually produces Absol's outro, the second-to-last song on Kendrick's independent breakthrough album Section 80 from 2011. It's an obvious to Pimp a Butterfly precursor, straight-up jazz drums, Keys, wailing sax, and Kendrick rapping about existential confusion and his refusal to be categorized. See, I spent 23 years on this earth searching for answers, till one day I realized I had to come up with my own. I'm not on the outside looking in, I'm not on the inside looking out. I'm in the dead fucking center looking around. You ever seen a newborn baby kill a grown man? That's an analogy for the way the world make me react. My innocence been dead. So the next time I talk about money, hoes, clothes, God, and history all in the same sentence, just know I meant it and you felt it because you too are searching for answers. I'm not the next pop star. I'm not the next socially aware rapper. I am a human motherfucking being of a dope-ass instrumentation. Kill you all. Now fuck them up, Terry. So... I was drinking a lot back then, uh, so I may not be that clear on a few things. What the question again? It's almost time. What do you for remember lunch. about for free? Oh yeah, I wrote that shit. That was a good one. Thank you. That's that's a morning time thing. <laughs> that's a morning time. <laughs> Sometimes a little creative exile is necessary. Sometimes. It's very necessary. This was the case for Terrace. He moved out to Porter Ranch, 
a planned community in the San Fernando Valley. I could wake up in the morning and I didn't hear trash trucks or traffic or people. I just that came to a point in my life. I needed me to be the first thing. I needed God and then me to be the first things I hear in the morning. And for all my life, I never had that till I moved a little further out. Yeah, he uh, he learned his lesson, though, from from good kid, actually, because he barely made good kid because of his activities, whatever he had going on at the time. This is Punch from TDE. I had to pull him to the side and have a real stern talking to. <laughs> like, yo, you going to blow it, bro. You like, we on, we, this is this bubble, like, really on the verge of some stuff. So it's like from that conversation, like, he was 10 toes down. We were doing to Pimp Butterfly every day, and I bought a baby grand piano. <laughs> and I put this piano in an area that I just felt was just cool. I could hear myself. That record was special to where even if it was anything electric I was writing, I was starting my mornings writing the idea before I go into the studio on the piano, on my phone, because I personally believe in that. What Terrace wrote that morning was in response to a conversation he'd just had with Kendrick. And uh, for free, I remember uh night before, I mean, I need some like, or some jazz shit. Like, I'm like, like jazzy? I don't like some real jazz. I'm like, jazz-ish? When Kendrick said jazz to Terrace Martin, he meant jazz. And Terrace took it there, hatching a plan for a furious new piece of music. Real jazz. Nothing-ish about it. Later that day, he was in the studio pitching his idea to Kendrick Lamar. He imagined the song playing out like an action scene from a heist movie. He's there writing that as we're doing this. And he's asking me, what's, what's, the, what's the concept? I'm like, man, honestly, man, this is what I, I look at it. The homies, we going in. We got to go save somebody. Aggressively, though. Guns, everything. We pulling out motherfuckers. They didn't kidnap the peaceful person. And we got to go get them to heal the world. Gangster style. Me? I'm like, go this way, this way, that way. Started off with the plan. They gone, creep off. Right when they creep off, why when they look this way? The other homies rushing the door. Do, do, de, do, de, do, 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 bang! That's supposed to emulate kicking in the door. Bang! Swing. That's two and four. And when the band starts swinging, we went in that motherfucking room and wiped it down. <laughs> wiped it down, everything down. Woo! That was the concept before the words got on it. Every instrument on there is coming with a story because we've already known that we're doing this giant black opera. Punch from TDE again. Terrace was in there. He was orchestrating everything. So he had all the instruments mic'd up in one room and everybody just playing in the same room live and then I remember Kendrick I think he I think he went home and wrote his uh his rap story and came back and laid it the next day but like that moment was crazy because it felt like the uh the Motown days when they had the Funk Brothers in there and they doing their thing and the artists in there singing I went to the most anticipated hip-hop session and I played jazz <laughs> Pianist Robert Glasper. Because Kendrick, on that song, it reminded me, because it's swing, it's jazz. It reminded me of John Coltrane. Terrence is like, I need you to play like McCoy on this. I was like, I got you. And and I, and I just heard Kendrick as the, as the saxophone. 
So I, I was just comping like I would if Kendrick was a saxophone. Not like he was a rapper, but like he was a saxophone. The biggest rapper at that time, spitting over a real minor blues. With the addition of Kendrick's rhymes, that minor blues becomes for free. This song is just over two minutes long. The track listing calls it an interlude. But like every piece of music on To Pimp a Butterfly, it feels dense with sonic information. It sounds a lot like what Terrace describes, a small, crowded room under attack. The vocal performance that this song pulls out of Kendrick, a kind of exaggerated spoken word poet delivery, syllables distended and stretched or piled up like train cars colliding, is unlike anything we'd heard him do on a record to that point. Kendrick is the most versatile rapper we probably ever had. Robert Glasper again. Most great rappers, you know their cadence. They have a cadence. They, they all do. They have a cadence. You know what that cadence is. It's the cadence they pretty much fall into most of the time. And every now and then they might break out of it, but pretty much that's the cadence. And that's that rapper. You know what I mean? But Kendrick, yo, you don't know. It depends on the song. It depends on the mood. It depends on the character he's presenting. It depends on the story. To Pimp a Butterfly alone, I think he had like nine, nine voices, nine cadences. He's like nine different people. You know what I mean? And truly sounded like a different person. Like the, his cadence was so, was so different and the intention was so different than the last song. By the time Glasper played on for free, Kendrick had already laid down his vocals and what Glasper heard in them was jazz, not jazz-ish. This dick ain't free. You looking at me like it ain't a receipt, like I never made ends meat, eating your leftovers and raw meat. This dick ain't free. Living in captivity, raised my cap salary, celery, telling me green is all I need. Evidently, all I seen was spam and raw sardines. This dick ain't free. I mean, baby, you really think we can make a baby name Mercedes without a Mercedes Benz and 24 inch rims, 5% tint and air conditioning vents? Hell fucking no. This dick ain't free. I need 40 acres and a mule, not a 40 ounce. So in one sense, you could say, not inaccurately, that all this genius, all this creative invention, all this lived experience is being brought to bear on a song about Kendrick's dick. But as in Wesley's theory, which comes right before this song, what Kendrick's really talking about in For Free is the whole notion of material success, the allure, the hollow promise of America personified here variously as a pornographic come-on and a taunting voice telling you you ain't shit unless you're earning and spending. And just like in King Kunta, where Kendrick says if he has to compromise his dignity for success, he'd rather be a bum than a baller, this is Kendrick rejecting a capitalist notion of achievement and landing the whole thing on an evocation of slavery. Oh, America, you bad bitch. I picked cotton and made you rich. Now my dick ain't free. I'm gonna get my Uncle Sam to fuck you up. You ain't no king. I don't know. Maybe you have to watch the video where a jazz band does a home invasion and Kendrick plays Uncle Sam shoveling shit into a basement furnace. It makes sense to me. Anyway, this song is jazz doing what it's always done. Speaking to the present, to the moment in the language of the moment, just like the best hip-hop always does. That's what's so dope about it. Robert Glasper. Because that's how you keep the music alive. When you think of jazz, everybody thinks of the elders, you know what I mean, and the people who came before us, which you should, you know what I mean? But at the same time, sometimes you ignore the present, who's also going to be the future, because we're, we're doing things now, and we're changing things now. 
And we're also going to be part of history, too. So you can't ignore what's now either. But most people ignore the jazz musicians who are not our forefathers of the music, per se. You know what I mean? But luckily, you know, through Terrace and, and Kendrick, he was able to make this happen and, you know, and get the cats on, 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 on the album. But sometimes it becomes impossible to ignore the present, the world outside the studio. And with that, we're back at the question of how this album happened. If you are in the street, you need to exit the street immediately. The news is what happened. Motherfuckers getting killed. For, I mean, that year was crazy. That was the new public getting killed on the fucking gram and black people. And damn, cuz, we, we, are we under attack? Well, me personally, I'm like, damn, do I need to start grabbing the pistols? And are we popping back at the, are we popping back? Oh, it's music. Oh, we got to do music. Next time on The Big Hit Show, a movement looks to Kendrick for inspiration. It was a little bit of like, where is the political rapper that we were promised? A city rises up. There were nights where nothing happened. There were nights where it was chaos. We all thought we were going to die. And a song meets the moment. I just remember it just popped all on my timeline. And I'm just like, wait, what are they saying? For it to become the statement. It was like, hell yeah. Like, hell yeah. From Higher Ground, this is The Big Hit Show. It's written and hosted by me, Alex Papadimus, and produced by Western Sound. Colin McNulty is our showrunner. Producers are Taylor Jones and Sabrina Fang. Our production assistant is Stella Hartman. Alex McGinnis is our composer, sound designer, and mix engineer. Savannah Wright is our fact checker. Studio direction and theme music by Dan Leone. The executive producer is Ben Adair. Executive producers for Higher Ground are Dan Fearman, Anna Holmes, Mukta Mohan, and Janae Marable. Jen Levin is our editorial assistant. Executive producers for Spotify are Daniel Eck, Don Ostroff, Julie McNamara, and Corinne Gilliard. Music licensing by Search Party Music. Special thanks to Joe Paulson and Eric Spiegelman. 